Well, admittedly, I'm going to ask a lot of you today, because you notice when you came in, you have a, a booklet, a new booklet. I just want to say thank you so much to Emily for putting in so much extra work, because she started working on this, and then the computer just decided it would throw her file away, and so she had to do it over again. Yeah, so I'm so thankful for that, but this is a brand new booklet she's put together for Ephesians chapter 1 as we're going to go through, and just want to have you look at it real quick. If you notice inside, I've given you a very simple outline. Uh, I'm looking at possibly taking some of the notes that I've accumulated on this book uh, and, and posting them on the pastor's blog on our website so that if you want more information about some things or some comments, commentary, suggested resources, whatever, that type of thing, thinking about trying to update that maybe the day after uh, we go over a, a passage. And if you want something maybe to look a little bit more throughout the week, you can. But we start out with a basic outline of chapter 1 that we're going to be looking at. And if you notice the next page, when we're dealing with the introduction of this, the salutation of this, you've actually got the scriptures put out, posted apart, so you've got plenty of room for marking. And I am going to be using the surface for all of this. And I'm going to be doing it kind of hodgepodge different today. So I trust that everybody is in the spirit and has patience. We're going to be good. But I'm also going to ask you to take your Bible and open up to Ephesians 1 as well. Because there are some things that we are going to be looking at that might not be readily in this little booklet that you have. Some things that we might need to look at to look at some other scriptures that would go with it. And I would also make one more suggestion if you're interested. I've taken the entire book of Ephesians. And I've printed it out landscape style and put enough room in the midst so I could do all of my marking as I work through the book. If this is something that you're into, I know what you're saying. I'm not that nerdy. That's okay. But if you are, I would suggest this because it's a really great way to study. It's a really great way to keep all your notes in one place. You've got enough margin to mark things. So just whatever will encourage you to get completely enthralled with this book. I would love to see that happen. Uh, because I, I firmly believe that the book of Ephesians has the opportunity to change our lives permanently. That's what God's Word does. So here it is. We just got done with Christmas. How many of you were, were absolutely floored by how many Christmas cards you got? Anybody? You start putting them up, and then you recognize that you've run out of space. you got to move them. And some people signed their names, which is great. They sent a card. It's great. Some people took it as a moment to write their diary. I don't know, you know, sometimes, you know. Some people took some things just to want to encourage you and build you up. But here's the thing. We love getting letters. We love getting letters. Emails kind of cheapen that for us if we have to be honest, right? But there's something about the fact that somebody sat down and took the time to handwrite a letter Expressing some things that maybe they never would have expressed before. Showing you a side of themselves maybe you never saw before. Maybe expressing some sort of gratitude towards you and you think, good grief, it's, it becomes special to you. In fact, one of the things that World War II is, is most noted for is the idea that whenever letters would come home, right? And you, all, you always had a sweetheart that was waiting there, kind of holding down the fort, whether it was married or courting or whatever it was at that time. They couldn't wait to get that in the mail. And of course, those soldiers were waiting for it because it always smelled good when they got the letter, right? 
the words inside were good, but they opened it up and they were taken to another place when they were in a place that they didn't want to be. Letters do something to people. Letters change people. Letters have the opportunity to build you up and throw you in heights that you never even thought were possible. And that's exactly what Paul has done for us here. One of the beautiful things about Ephesians is that it's so different from any other letter that Paul wrote. Got a got an interesting. Uh, am I good? Okay, I know how to work this. It's good. You can walk through all of Paul's letters, all of them, and just if you pay attention to the greetings, there's always something that's different going on. Usually, with what we're looking here, you've got Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. They're all kind of put together. We look at those as a unit. But if you've looked at some of those, you know that if you read the beginning of Colossians, it starts out looking really good, and then Paul just pushes them off the cliff all of a sudden because he's upset about something that's going on. He says, well, that's very different. You compare it to Philippians, and it's nothing but joy and encouragement and all these things. Oh, I'd much rather read Philippians than I would Galatians about what's going on. Ephesians has got its own unique style. Some people have actually called it the crowning jewel of everything that Paul wrote. And that's a pretty big order to, to or a pretty big statement to make when you think about uh, the, the sweeping magnitude of Romans or something like that. There's something about Ephesians that sets it off and makes it different. There's a, there's a Lutheran gram, Greek grammarian who gave this quote about it. I thought it was very uh, timely. Ephesians is unlike any other of Paul's letters and that it treats a great subject for the purpose of edification only. In other words, when he started his pen writing, he just wanted to go onward and upward the more that he wrote. All he cared about were the people that received this being better off once they heard it read aloud and set it down. I don't know about you, but with the way things look in the world today, I need a letter like that. I need a letter that's going to build me up and take me to places that I don't normally go and send me there gladly, hoping that I will camp out for a while. That's a good thing to have. So, uh, let's do this. I'm having to scroll this kind of strangely. Number one, if we deal with our text, if you either want to look at your text in your Bible or you check out your text here in the booklet, either one, if you've got a pen, if you need a pen, um, Zach is smiling, so that means he's good to go. If you need a pen, he will bring the basket around and give to you. Does anybody need a pen? Look in this. Scott needs a pen. He needs a pen. Fantastic. We've got about three or four people. Thank you, Zach. Remember, he's got better legs than me, both in strength and appearance. So, he'll be able to get that to you, no problem. But here's the first thing that we're going to start with that we need to pay attention to. You might say, well, we're only covering two verses today. Yes, we are, but there's so much here. And too often when we start into a book, we gloss over very quickly the contents of two verses when we need to slow down and chew on the fact of what they might be. Number one, we're dealing with Paul. Can everybody see the red? Paul, very important. Why is this? If for no other reason that he is the author, and you always want to identify the author of the book, the reason is is because, especially if they've written more than just this one letter, you have a lot of common themes that he will weave together, or you end up comparing Scripture with Scripture, getting a much greater understanding of what he's wanting you to grasp as a whole. And we're going to see something kind of interesting about this letter here in just a minute. Now, with Paul, let's refresh real quickly. I know we spent about eight Sundays on this. 
But when we deal with the Apostle Paul, he's the human author of this, but here's everything that we kind of hit about him. And let's just hit it real quick. I'm not looking to spend a lot of time. But he's a minister to the Gentiles. We know from Acts 9, 15, and 16 he was called to them. He's of the tribe of Benjamin, so he's thoroughly a Jew, Jewish born, but he's also born as a Roman citizen. He was formerly, a pers- uh, formerly persecuted the church, and he, and he had a lot of guilt kind of going on about that because he considered himself the least of the apostles. If you don't get this now, don't worry. It's going to be on the live stream. I can bring it up for you. It's not a problem. Uh, he was formerly a Pharisee, so he was part of the ruling class that would have made a lot of judgments, been well-versed in the Old Testament, all of that. He stuttered under Gamaliel, which was considered the pinnacle rabbi teacher of the Jewish people at that time. It was elite to be under his tutelage. It says here he was the first missionary as well. We set off on his first missionary journey. But he was also the first church planter. He was the one who went around, would share the gospel with people. He got a few people that believed. He would train them up, establish some elders, and he would move on to the next place. So he had no problem church planting. By trade, he was a tent maker. But he also wrote 13, forgive me, 13 New Testament books. So God used him greatly to do something incredible. And when we get to chapter 3, we're going to see some of the insights into what God gave to Paul that he didn't really give to anybody else at that time and then began unfolding this amongst all the apostles who were living at that time. He considered himself to be the least of all of the apostles. He was considered the lowest. Now, if you've ever spent some time researching Paul, studying Paul, reading through some of his letters and thinking about it, you think, good grief, what in the world did this man have to go through in order to come to these insights about who Jesus is? That's amazing. Notice that his personal perspective of himself is, is they're all better than me. doesn't matter who they are. Even Peter. You know? Some of you kind of get that, but we, we know what that guy was doing. Anyway. But here's the most amazing thing about him. The most amazing thing that we could ever learn about the Apostle Paul. He was single-minded, and he was wholehearted in his devotion to Christ. It was Jesus or nothing. And I will tell you this. The church needs more of that. We need more all in for Jesus. Sometimes we treat our Christianity like we're diversifying stocks. That's not how it is. Well, we want to divide it all up in case one goes down. Don't put all your eggs in the basket. No, put all your eggs in Jesus' basket. I promise you, he's the only one that knows what to do with it. So there needs to come a point sometimes when studying the Scriptures that we have to come to a personal conclusion in ourselves Am I all in with Christ? Trying to get like a glimpse of that when we're looking at this. So notice what else we see here. Paul, not only is he Paul, but he's also, everybody see this. He's an apostle. And the reason why this is important is because he is being very upfront about his office. He holds a special calling or responsibility. Now, the word for apostle here is actually the word apostolos. And it's the idea of sending out a fleet of ships. If that helps you, remember. The king comes about and he's got a mission and there needs to be an expedition that is sent out. So he gathers together some commanders and those that are under them and he puts together a squadron of ships and he sends them out with the intent of something to be accomplished. That is what an apostle is. Anytime that an apostle comes along in Scripture, you find that they've been sent for a purpose, for a reason. Now, usually what qualifies an apostle, on the way back driving home yesterday, we passed by something that was like New Life Apostolic Church. And and forgive me, but I always get kind of a giggle out of that because there are no apostles today. 
The apostles were those who were commissioned by the resurrected Lord Jesus to go and do ministry. So you can go through the New Testament after the time of John and you can find a lot of different apostles that will go through there. But every one of them were sent out by Jesus for some reason. And the reason why Paul will describe himself like something as the least of the apostles or one who was untimely born, that's how he talks about himself in 1 Corinthians 15, is because he's probably the last one of all of them that was called. Everybody remember, he's on the way to Damascus to arrest people. Jesus shows up, knocks him to the ground, and commissions him for ministry. I mean, that's quite a conversion right there. But he set him out on a purpose. So that's what we deal with when we deal with an apostle. Now, before we move forward, let's talk about a few of the regulatory things that we need to understand. Number one, if you're curious about, well, when was this written? This was written in A.D. 63. Ephesians is one of four letters that are known as prison epistles. Now here's what's amazing about this. Ephesians is full of joy. In fact, if I had to come up with one or two words to describe it, it would either be glorious or grace, but it's on every page and every word. It's dripping with blessing. It really is. And then you pause for a moment and you recognize this guy's in jail when he wrote this. That's pretty profound. Now, some people will look at Acts 28 and you say, well, I see how his ministry ends there. And it's kind of strange that he's, he's there on house arrest. Was it really that bad? Well, I don't know. Have any of us ever spent time chained to a Roman guard? You know? One guy said the chain was more for, for Paul than it was for the guard. Right? Captive audience. So that's kind of a nice thing. In fact, we read at the beginning of Philippians, which is another prison epistle, I praise God that the praetorian guard is starting to come to faith in Christ. Why? Because they're chained to an evangelist for so many hours a day. That's just what happens. And you know Paul, if he's single-minded and wholehearted, he can't close his mouth about what he's seen and heard. So he's going to tell people about the good news of Jesus Christ. It's just going to happen. Now what's amazing about this is that Colossians, Philemon, and also if you want to write it in there, but Philippians is the other one. So Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon are all for the prison epistles. Colossians and Philemon have such close ties. Why is that? Well, Philemon is actually a guy who was the head of the church in Colossae. So Philemon is a personal letter greeting all those and those in your household, which would have been those in the church, which would also have been the Colossians. So those two letters go together real nice, okay? But also Colossians stands as a sister letter to Ephesians. So if you're reading through Ephesians and you want to get more out of Ephesians than what you're just reading there, you go over to Colossians and you start to read them back and forth and you see how they begin to marry together. Jude and 2 Peter are like that as well. You will find that they end up being two sides of a zipper that just zip up real nice. So notice it says here, the sister letter of the Ephesians and that makes dating Ephesians the easiest because he's on house arrest and you can read Acts 28 to see how all that came about to be. But from there he began sending out letters while he was there for two years of house arrest now next who are the recipients of this okay now this is a very different deal ephesus was one of many churches to receive an encyclical letter now let me explain this to you real quick here's what an encyclical letter is it would be like the idea of me sitting down and writing but i leave the addressing blank and I have something that I want to share with Zach. And I have something that I want to share with Emily. But I'm sharing the same thing with them. And when they get it, I say, just fill your name in there where the blank is. Okay? It's believed, and it has pretty good evidence, 
that Ephesians wasn't written specifically to the church in Ephesus as if that was the only time it was going to come to them and he had specifically them in mind. It's the idea that it was a general letter that is full of great doctrine but was then copied and circulated throughout all of the rest of the churches that might have been there at that time. So why should we believe that that's the truth? Well, for two reasons. Number one, with in Ephesus not being in some of the Greek texts, it's up for grabs for that. The second reason is, is because any specifics that would have been brought up with his relationship with Ephesus, they're not there. In fact, the only guy you see is Tychicus. And he's the guy who brought the letter around to them. But think about what we saw before. How long did Paul spend in Ephesus? Ah, quiz time. You didn't expect that in the New Year, did you? How many years was he there? Anybody remember? Three. He was there for three years. He spent more time there than anywhere else that he spent. At three years, you're going to develop some relationships with some people. Does everybody remember that he brought Priscilla and Aquila with him? And remember, they stayed there. Apollos came about. They helped him along. He ended up coming back around. Talking to 12 different guys, he baptized them in the name of Jesus. They received the Holy Spirit. You got this whole thing kicking off. There's a lot of riots that happened there because of Paul. He was a well-liked guy, right? He's got some influence there. But what's amazing is, is there is nothing specific or personal of any one person in the letter except Tychicus is bringing you this letter. That's it. If you read the end of Romans... The end of Romans, chapter 16, is all devoted to, and greet this person, and drink, greet this person. I love it because it's the only time the word Rufus is mentioned in the Bible, and I think that's a great name. Greet Rufus. He's a beloved brother in the Lord. Fantastic. You never see greet this person, greet this person in this letter. It's very unusual for Paul. So we have two choices. We either, A, dispute that Paul even wrote the letter, which people didn't do until the 1850s when higher criticism came along. Higher criticism is majorly a waste of time so don't even worry about that or secondly we believe the holy spirit and what he said as being the almighty author working through paul to bring that about and it's probably a letter that was copied and passed around and everybody wrote in their own little thing there now here's what's interesting about this is if we see here this idea of at ephesus we ask a question about that how would we possibly make sense of okay well at ephesus is in there but not all the manuscripts hold that and if you've got a marginal note It'll usually tell you something like that. How do we deal with that? A very interesting thing is to go to the sister book. Colossians 4, 16. So I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you wouldn't mind, and turn over just a couple of books to Colossians. And look at chapter 4. And it actually brings this word up in 15. <clears throat> there, are, there are four times in the book of Colossians where Laodicea, is mentioned. Laodicea, Laodicea. And if you look in chapter 4, and I don't have it up on the screen, so you got to turn there. And let's look at verses 15 and 16. Colossians 4, 15 and 16. It says, Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea, and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. When this letter is read among you, so the letter to the Colossians that they're holding in their hands, when this letter is read among you, have it also read to the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Me personally, I would hold that what we deal with in Ephesians might be better understood in Colossians as the letter to the Laodiceans. The thing was, is it didn't just hit the Laodiceans. It was copied and it was passed around to all of those churches 
at that time. But because of the incredible similarities between Colossians and Ephesians and how they kind of complete one another in thought, I believe personally that that might be a good answer to that. So, that's all probably nerdy stuff. You're saying, I don't even care. That's okay, I love you. Moving on here. What is the meaning and purpose of Ephesians? Ephesians is not a polemic or confrontational as are some of the other epistles. For he is not facing a crisis of doctrine or behavior in a church, but is reflecting on some of the deepest realities of the Christian life. Now, if you were just to read through the book on your own, and you're just looking to do a a, a cursory glance, and you're going to jot down some common themes that you see that happen here, here's what I found. Number one, love is mentioned more than one-sixth of the uses in Paul's letter. More than one-sixth of the time, he's got love peppered all throughout Ephesians. The second one is, is that relationships are the key. You find the Father, Son, Holy Spirit working together. You find Christ and the church working together. You find Jews and Gentiles being brought together. You find husbands and wives learning what it is to be together. You find parents and children learning what it is to be together. Masters and slaves learning what it is to be together. And believers and their relationships to demons, which you never want to have those two together. Okay? But how do you deal with it? Another common theme is oneness and unity. How important it is, as Christ is one, for the body of Christ to be one. But also, you have my favorite subject probably in all of the Bible. And that's what's known as in Christ truth. Or something that we would also call by another word, positional truth. Okay? And maybe this might be new vocabulary, I don't know. But 40 out of 51 times in Paul's letters, 40 times in just Ephesians. He deals with the idea of in Christ, in Him, or in the Beloved. In Jesus. He is excited about what it is to be in Jesus Christ. Now, sorry, I'm having to pepper around here real quick. Let's do this real quick, because this is actually an old slide updated just a little bit. Let me give you a quick overview. Probably remember this when we first talked about starting it and getting into Paul's life, but I just want to share this with you so you see the break that goes on here. Number one, we have chapter one is his glorious privilege, and that's what we're going to look at. Chapter two deals with our glorious position in Christ, and chapter three deals with the glorious plan of God in bringing forth the church and what he's doing. Now, all of this deals with doctrine or wealth. The first three chapters deal with that, and it speaks with our relationship being established because of Christ. It speaks with our standing before God being established because of Christ, and it gives an explanation of who we are in Christ. And here's what's amazing about all of chapter 1 through 3. Paul don't ask you to do nothing. And that's with a I-N apostrophe. Okay? He don't ask you to do nothing. Why is that? Because it's all God's part. And it's all active. This is, this is three chapters of everything that God has done for you. He just does it does it perfectly, and puts it all out there and says, in Christ, here is everything that you already have. In fact, you're going to notice it next week. We're going to get into something, and we're going to use this phrase a lot. Already blessings. Already blessings. Why? Because they're blessings from God that we don't deserve, and we already have them. We don't have to pray or get our knees all dirty or anything like that in order to get them. They are already ours. They are ours in abundance. So that's what makes this interesting is that the first three chapters, it's all God's part, and it's all active towards the believer who is in Christ. The next part deals with the idea of our glorious practice in Christ. How do we live as a body with one another 
our one-anothering that goes on. The next part is much longer, though, our glorious prescription. How should we live? What does God say the best medicine is for us to take based on what we've learned? The last one is spiritual warfare, our glorious protection. What has Jesus done to prepare us for the battle with the enemy? Anybody know that we have a battle with the enemy going on? Good. Okay, some of you got saved. That's great. Moving on here. That's a joke. You guys have got to loosen up, okay? But this deal deals with our practice and our walk. We're not worried about what it is to establish relationship because God does that in Christ. We're not worried about what it is to cultivate fellowship with Him in Christ. We're worried about our state, not our standing. Our standing is chapter 1 through 3. What's the state of our being? How are we doing in life? And the last one deals with our experience. Now, what's amazing about this is this is our part, which is reactive. In other words, chapters 1 through 3 is so weighty and glorious and shiny gold that it should actually motivate us from the things that are already true to jettison forward in how we live our lives in a much different way, make choices in a different way, make decisions in a different way, approach one another in a different way. It is to change our lives based on a launching pad that has been supplied for us in Jesus. That makes sense to everybody? Okay, so it's just up, up, up for us. So notice this. Paul, an apostle, notice that he's of, and he brings up Christ first. This probably has to do with this Jewish heritage. When we understand Greek, Christos, we're dealing with the idea of the Messiah. Okay, So when we think about this, we want to think about Messiah, and that is an E. Christ Jesus. Now notice it's not just about Christ Jesus. It's a high calling that he's been given personally commissioned by Jesus himself. But it's also by the will of God. Are you in God's will? How do you know? Well, I'm in Christ. But can you be in Christ and not be in God's will? Oh, yes, you can. Oh, yes, you can. In fact, there's a, there's unspeakable things in Scripture that Christians do. Right? In fact, if we wouldn't have wrote them down, we might not have come up with it because we never do that. Unbelievable things. By the will of God. Here's an interesting thing about this. God wanted Paul. God wanted him. In fact, you don't just appear to somebody and knock them to the ground if you're not trying to get their attention about something. Yes? And it's amazing. I'm going to set him off on a life that he didn't plan for. Praise God. Think about it. Paul was at a point in life where all he cared about was personal affluence Climbing the religious ladder and killing Christians to get the approval of the elite. Then all of a sudden you've got him writing something very strange in a book that says, I consider all of these things lost for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. What a dynamic turn. That is the pancake flip of all pancake flips. This is what the Word of God does to us. Is all of a sudden recognize that my will is not important. What I want in a situation really isn't that important. But stepping back and asking the question, what does God want out of my life? And then once we understand what the will of God is, we do whatever we need to in order to conform in that. 
We argue and reason too much out of obedience when we should just obey and watch God bless. And we miss a lot of blessing because we don't obey what His Word clearly says. We rationalize. I sat down with somebody one time and I said, this situation that's going on here, here's what the Word of God says about it. And they said, yeah, there's many interpretations of that. And if you know me, you know that I was on fire at that moment. On fire with a smile, okay? And I said, well, how do you do that? How do you deal with this? Well, I asked this other pastor, and he said we shouldn't understand it that way. I said, man, that's, that's great. You should go to his church. <laughs> what do you do in a situation like that? If basic obedience situations have become trivial to the body of Christ, we'll never obey. We'll always do what we want to. What I love about Paul is that he surrendered to the Lord. Put his hands up and say, Lord, Your will be done in this situation. He has surrendered. There's a guy named Chester McCauley. He has this quote, Man's true freedom lies in the cheerful acceptance of God's will as his own. Paul's in prison, yes? Chains, yes? Probably bonds on him? Makes it a little bit harder to write. Every time you're scribbling something, you hear ching, ching, ching. That's a little different. You got a guy with a sword and a spear and a large shield and a lot of armor standing not too far from you at every moment. Probably having not the most pleasant of conversations. And yet, he's the freest man in all the world at that moment. Why? Because Christ set him free. Because Christ set him free. He knows God's will. Knowing God's will sets us free. Paul understands this. And this is why he can write a letter of this magnitude. And you never see any ho-hum theology in there. There's no Eeyore scholarship going on in this book. It is joy and it is peace and it is grace and it is glorious even in the midst of change. Man, that's fantastic. Notice it's by the will of God. It is God's will. Now, notice this. To the saints who are in Ephesus, and we already talked about this, and who are faithful. What am I seeing? Here's what's interesting between these two. Saints. Chuck and I had the opportunity to lead a girl to faith in Christ. And we're going through, here's who you are in Christ now. Here's, here's, here's your new identity. We said, you're a saint. She leaned back, she goes, no. Even got a little spit on me, I didn't care. Because this was such a glorious truth, it's fine. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're a saint. The church doesn't determine who a saint is. Jesus does. In fact, the word for saint means... Holy One. If you look in the margin of your Bible, you might actually see it. Maybe it's designated. It will say, Holy Ones. That's you. Here's the amazing thing. It is Jay without a shadow of a doubt. It's me without a shadow of a doubt. It's even Zach without a shadow of a doubt. I'm just kidding. Being a saint is never about what you've done or what you do. Or what you will do in the future. Being a saint is about everything that Christ has done sufficiently for you. And how do we know this? Well, here's the reason why. Don't miss this word. We're going to deal with it here in just a second. And 
When I see this word, I give it a heavy underline. I've got my little Sharpie highlighters in here. And I've gone through in paint. And I've nailed this. Here, my Bible, my other Bible, my Bible Bible, i got them all. In Christ. Why is that? Because this is our location. God the Father never sees the believer in Christ in any other way except in Christ. Never. I've used this before. It's the Jesus glasses. And when, when we don't know Christ, God sees us plainly for who we are then. But when we come to faith, when we hear the gospel and we respond in faith, we are now jettisoned into a brand new glorious station. We are in Christ and He puts on these Jesus glasses and He only sees Zach in Christ all the time. Only. That's the way that He views him. He views him in His Son. And He is perfectly pleased with everything that the Son has done. Therefore, He's perfectly pleased with everything in Zach. Is that because Zach became holy, righteous, amazing, always uses coupons at the supermarket? No. It's because Zach may be tainted in practice, but he's perfect in position. How did he get there? He got there because that's where Christ took him. We are as righteous as Jesus Christ is if we have believed in Him. You say, that sounds really arrogant. No, it's just true. If it was something based on what I did, you can guarantee two things. Number one, it would be arrogant. And number two, it wouldn't be righteousness. But if it's all heaped upon the merits of Christ, then the riches that are flowing off you and I in the spiritual realm are unfathomable, unsearchable, immeasurable, huge. I don't know about you, but that wets my whistle. That's some good stuff. Because any time that I'm feeling down about life, about situations, about I got a case of the Mondays, whatever it might be, Simply calling a spiritual time out and recognizing that I am a saint because of what Jesus has done is amazing. I am a holy one. You're a holy one. Isn't that incredible? You say, I don't feel holy. Praise the Lord. It's not based on feelings, but on fact. And it's God who establishes those facts. It's His truth. Whatever we believe doesn't change His truth. His truth remains true regardless of whether we believe it or not, whether we feel it or not, whether we agree with it or not. He's not looking for our acceptance of His ways. He establishes His ways, and in Christ He brings us to these things because He wants to teach us the depths of His love for us. Well, these are all the things He's done in Christ. Now, here's what's interesting. Not only saints, but it says who are at Ephesus and who are... Now, that's everybody see that's italics? Understand this. The translators have not sought to do a bad job. That's important for you to know. But when they're coming along in a manuscript and they're translating, they want to try to add some words in order to make it a complete English sentence for our understanding. So in a situation like this, it's not that these words are bad at all, but they're just not in the original text. The translators are trying to help you out in that, and that's okay. There's no definite article in the Greek before faithful. If there was, it would be like two distinct classes. But I think there's a situation here where they're put together. Now, Chuck and I were sitting with Pastor Steve the other day, and I said, Pastor Steve, what do you think about this? I'm curious. We've talked through this book before. I'm curious what you think. Here's what he told me. He said, the saints are those who show up, and the faithful are those who are fessed up. Let it set for a second. 
And you'll realize that's pretty brilliant. The saints are those who have showed up. And the faithful are those who are fessed up. That's an excellent way of putting it. I don't know I could have come up with any better. The saints are those who are fully accepted in Christ, are believers in Christ, as heaven is their destination, can look forward to an absolute glorious eternity always with them because they're perfectly secure because of Christ. But are they faithful? Are they living for the Lord? Something that was real big back when I was playing in bands. Are you on fire for Christ? That's what we used to say. They'd go around torching everybody. Are we on fire for Jesus? Let me ask you this. Does your love for your brother or sister burn hot or cold? You sort through those embers, what are they like? That's, that's my prayer for this year. My prayer for this year. Last night I was seriously thinking about, God, seems like all these people got prayers about what they want to see you do. That was my prayer. Lord, my cold embers as far as agape type love, selfless love, wanting nothing in return type of love. If those embers are cold, set me on fire. Set me on fire for Christ. Because if this world is showing me that it needs anything, it needs selfless love like Jesus. Period. Period. Are you somebody who show up or are you somebody who's fessed up? It's a good question to ask. Everybody see this in Christ? Notice that both are in Christ. That doesn't change. Both are in Christ. They both have the same glorious location. God has still given them fully everything in His Son, regardless if they're saints or faithful. doesn't matter. Okay? But the question that we want to grasp is, are we living in reaction to the grace that God has shown? Or are we just kind of sitting around not utilizing the grace of God at all and still handling our problems like the world? That's the difference between showing up and fessing up. Still a saint, nothing can change your position because it's in Christ. It's all Him. You can't even put your hands on it. It's done. But the question is, is are we utilizing all of those riches to enrich our lives for better living? Now, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. In Christ stands as a major theme in Ephesians. When we get into verse 3, from verse 3 to verse 14 is one run-on sentence. Paul was so excited, he didn't even bother to put punctuation in there. Right? It's like a first grader writing something. It was amazing. But here's what I'm going to ask you to do. In Christ stands as a major theme in Ephesians, with Paul referring to these truths 12 times in 1 through 14. If you wouldn't mind, whether this be in your booklet that you have, or whether it be in your Bible that you have, you wouldn't mind to mark these. If you feel more comfortable marking in there because you don't want to mark your Bible, that's fine, but we have these printed out for you. But notice in verse 1, to the saints at Ephesus who are faithful in Christ Jesus. There's your first one. Mark that one. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now in heavenly places, you might not want to mark that one, but the in Christ, definitely mark it. Because that's where we are. That's our new location. Just as He chose us in Him. Does everybody see that? Drop down to verse 6. To the praise of the glory of His grace which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Who's the Beloved? It's Jesus, right? Notice verse 7. In Him we have redemption. Write that M. Mark it in there. Verse 9. He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention which He purposed in Him. Look at verse 10 with a view to administration suitable to the fullness of the times, 
That is a summing up of all things in Christ. Things in the heavens and things that are on the earth in Him. Notice, we couldn't even get into the next verse. He had to throw one more in there in verse 10 before he moved on, right? In Him, also having obtained an inheritance. Go down to 12. In the end, that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. Verse 13, in Him. It starts that well, and later on in the verse, we are sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Believers in Christ, where are you? In Him. Now, you want some fun. Next time you go to renew your driver's license, say, hey, don't put down Portage, Wisconsin. If you want to put down my address, it's in Him. They'll say, what is wrong with you? Open door for the gospel, immediately. Open door for evangelism. There it is. In Him. That's everything we're going to be unpacking over the next few weeks. What is it to be in Him? How about this? Grace to you and peace. So notice you've got two things here. Grace, peace. From, and notice that Paul is a representative of here. God our Father, and, and he changes up the designation a little bit, the Lord, uh, let's see here, Kyrios, the Lord Jesus Christ, Messiah. Number one, grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor. We cannot talk enough about grace. Let me give you a good definition. Uh, Lewis Perry Chaper said this, grace is infinite Love expressing itself in infinite goodness. It is God's never-ending love as an expression towards us that is always and never cannot be good. It actually is the heaps of His riches upon us that are always in the positive, never in the negative. That is who Jesus is for us. Now, why does Paul tell this church, the churches that are receiving this, grace to you and peace? Well, he's not talking about the grace that we needed in order to make salvation available. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking more, in fact, here about grace for daily living. He's talking about the everyday grace that we need. Next time that you write a letter to somebody, next time that you send a text message to somebody or an email, since people love getting messages, write them, grace to you in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Give them that encouragement. Take that as a moment to maybe pray for them, that God would bless them by His grace. Grace to make it through the day. Does anybody here need grace to make it through the day? Good grief, we start wiping the walls on that one. Yes, Lord, me. I need grace to make it through the day. You need grace to make it through the day. That's His first opening in this situation. Another interesting part here is the idea of peace. Now this is important because we need to understand Two different things. Uh, let's see here. One, peace with God. Number two, peace of God. Peace with God, I don't know how to do this here except this, is a relationship issue. The peace of God over our lives is a fellowship issue. Let me explain it to you. Last week, I think it was, we looked at Romans 5.1 for a minute. Having been justified by faith, you now have peace with God 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's something that He just gives to you. You're no longer butting heads. You're on His side now. And that's what He did. And it's a positional reality. One of our realities in Christ is that I am at peace with God, period. But the question is, is do I have the peace of God in situations? How would we deal with that? Well, Philippians 4, when we're dealing with anxiety, right? Don't be anxious for anything. But in all things, through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. And the peace that passes all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Now, if we already had that peace, why in the world would we have to pray as a result of thanking God and giving our requests continually to Him in order for that to be given? Because it's about cultivating a fellowship with Him, not about the peace that He's automatically given us. Peace with God is something we already have. The peace of God over our lives, that whenever things go into hell in a handbasket, you can look at it and you can say, I'm good. Why? Because Christ is my rock. Because He's my anchor. Because He's my stay. And I had to take a mental and spiritual time out for a moment to grasp onto Scripture and embrace it and meditate on it so that I could open my eyes and live the rest of the day and make the decision that I need to. So that this wasn't an emotional gut reaction. It was founded on the rock that the Lord's already given. This grace and this peace. It's all about how they live. What are some applications that we can pull from here? Let me give you four applications that we pull from just this short introduction. We'll wrap this up. I'm going to write them in, write them down at the bottom, whatever. Number one, be prepared to learn more about who you really are. One of the greatest problems, and I've even talked with Chuck with this. Chuck will say in all the, all the years that he's been doing ministry, 4,500 years or so, he will tell you the, the number one problem that he always comes across in, in, in not being able to deal with life situations and stress and pressure and, and all this stuff is the fact that people don't know who they are in Christ. Or they will refuse to come to terms with who they are in Christ. They'll refuse to believe what God says about them. They will not accept God's acceptance of them. That's got to change. We are getting in a world that is going to get worse. That means the church gets better and brighter. And how do we do that? By having a better knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So notice here. Also, recognize that Ephesians is your letter. There's nothing in this letter that is specific to a certain group of people in the first century as to where we cannot embrace it and take hold of it. The idea that it's an encyclical letter is actually an amazing thing because I can see all the truths played out in it and I'm not worried about whether one applies to me or not in a situation. They all do. And that which means I can just get in there and just roll around in it and have fun with it. Because I can just learn to love it more and more the more that I meditate on it. Number three, all believers are saints without exception due to the grace of Christ. Uh, They're in Christ's standing. But not all are faithful. I'm going to ask you over this series in this book, which one is you? Are you a saint or are you faithful? You can be a saint without being faithful. You cannot be faithful without being a saint. Are you just content in taking everything that God has to give you? Or do you desire more of Him and you want to utilize what He's given you in order to jettison you into completely different realms of living? your choice that's what's amazing god's already done his part in this he's already supplied everything we need to be successful and victorious to live a life that does nothing but worship him single-minded wholehearted what are we doing a good question to ask last one it's a new year it's a new book 
So I want to encourage you, make a new commitment to Christ above all. God's will, nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else. That should be our cry for this year. We just want what God wants for us. And we want to use everything He's given us in Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I just praise Your holy name. Stepping into this book, we're, we're, we're just getting our pinky toe wet. God, how amazing it is to know, number one, we're all holy ones because of Jesus. If we have believed in Christ, we are holy ones. Elliot Breakbush is a holy one. It's an incredible, beautiful reality. Praise you, Lord, for the saving work that you do in people's lives. Lord Jesus, we need grace for daily living. We need peace for daily living. Father, I pray that we rest in all that your word says to us. We embrace it as true of us because it is your truth to us, Lord. Thank you for this book. And and please walk with us hand in hand as we seek to examine more and to uncover maybe things that we haven't seen in a while or we've never seen before. Lord, it is so full of riches and beauty that are pouring forward. Father, settle on our hearts about where we are with you. Is there really contentment internally with being a saint? Yes, it's glorious, it's good to be holy and accepted. It's all because of Jesus, that's true. But Lord, you desire obedience and faithfulness out of our lives. You know that's the best way for us to go. Father, help us to understand that even in the little things, even in the things that we would consider trivial or we try to pass off, Father, we know your word. Bring it to mind. Bring it to our hearts that we could walk fully with You. Lord, may this year be a year of incredible, life-changing, explosive blessing. We pray that in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen.